Welcome to Pathways to Hope and Healing, a podcast dedicated to sharing information, ideas, and resources about domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse. The topics discussed in this podcast, including survivor stories, supportive services, and domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse, can be difficult, and we urge you to listen with care. Our hosts are not licensed counselors or mental health professionals, but licensed counselors are available at the Nampa Family Justice Center. If you or someone you care about have experienced domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, or elder abuse, please call the Nampa Family Justice Center at 208-475-5700 or the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also find more resources in the description of this podcast. Welcome to this episode of Pathways to Hope and Healing. I'm Corey Michaels, along with Angela Weeks, retired Nampa detective and current president of the Family Justice Center Foundation. How are you, Angela? I'm good, Corey. How are you doing today? Wonderful, wonderful. It's always my honor to get to be in here and to to have our conversations, and that's that's a big thing to take away the stigma that is and has been in the past around uh, sexual assault um, and just the different forms of assault. It was, let's keep this hidden. Let's not talk about this. Uh, That's their problem. That's a household issue to take care of, you know, whatever it happened to be. Uh, but it was that allowed the victim to never be able to heal because it was never talked about. And that's a big part of Pathways to Hope and Healing in this podcast and why we started it was to say, no, we have to talk about these things. Yeah. And we have to get it out there that this is not a dirty little secret. Yeah. This is something that is unfortunately way too rampant. Yep, Absolutely. Today, you know, our talk regarding the impact of trauma related to these crimes that we have talked about with domestic violence and sexual assault and child abuse and the various topics that we have covered um, is really another way to um, move people forward to hope and healing. Um, It's amazing to me how often um, I run into professionals who aren't trauma-informed, if you will, who do not understand what the body and the brain choose as a response to help people survive. Um, The American Psychiatric Association actually defines trauma as a uh, exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. So there are several of us, whether we've been involved in car crashes, house fires, victims of robbery, uh, whether we've watched somebody die, uh, whether we have been in a situation ourselves where we have felt threatened, like we could lose Mm -hmm. our life. Um, We have all or several of us have experienced trauma on one level or another, but we don't often talk about what the brain does when we experience trauma. And I think it is such a powerful topic to help people understand their own hope and healing that can come out of it. Right. So when I actually just had the opportunity, I just came back, um, I, was traveling the state training law enforcement and prosecutors and nurses and child protective workers and uh, health and welfare, you know, just just a lot of different organizations specifically on this topic, just talking to them about 
understanding trauma so not only they can understand what they're seeing in their work, but so they can help their victims understand mm-hmm. what they're experiencing. Probably the two biggest takeaways I always emphasize is that our our body, the response that we have, we think we get to choose whether we're going to fight or flight or freeze. We think we know, you know, we, we armchair quarterback things. We'll see a news story. Yes. And we're like, well, if that ever happened to me, that guy'd be on the ground. Or if that ever happened to me. Yeah. But we don't know. Absolutely. We don't know. And what can be difficult is our brain in survival mode picks something just for that specifically to help you survive. And it's not in your rational brain. I always tell people I'm not I'm not a brain doctor and I'm not a scientist by any means. But there are two really key points of the brain that when we understand their roles and when we understand when they're functioning and not functioning, they help us understand some of the responses we see in trauma. Yeah. And this is, well, and this is how our brain reacts at the moment of the trauma, but then also after the fact in dealing with whatever that trauma was as well. Absolutely. So one of the key things that happens, so I always tell people, you know, if they were to take their the, their hand, their open hand, and they put it on the front of their head, um, you know, about their forehead level, that they're actually identifying their prefrontal cortex. They're identifying the size of their logical, thinking, rational brain, their portion of the brain that says, if this happens, then do that. The portion of the brain that allows them to weigh the pros and cons of their actions. Mm-hmm. The portion of the brain that actually allows them to put things in a chronological context. Like if I said, Corey, from the time you got up this morning to the time you came to this podcast, tell me everything you did from the beginning to end. Don't leave anything out. And when we're in our prefrontal cortex, we can give some good detail around that. Right. But when somebody experiences trauma, mm-hmm. they're not functioning, typically not even close to functioning in their prefrontal cortex or it's or significantly impaired. The other portion of the brain that I often talk to people about is the limbic system the, or the fear center, the defense circuitry, um, where we have um, the amygdala, which I tell people, hold up your thumb and look at the end of your thumb. It's about the size of an almond. And if you compare, you know, if you would rather be functioning in your prefrontal, the size of the palm of your hand, or would you rather be functioning at the size of an almond? And when you respond to an event, well, we don't get to choose that, but that amygdala is going to release these hormones that surge throughout your body that's going to prepare your body to fight, flight, or freeze. And what a lot of people don't realize is that we are evolved to freeze first. Have you ever seen yeah. pictures like deer in the headlight? Or maybe you've experienced a deer in the headlight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yep. they, they stand there and they look at you and they, they don't move. And it's usually for a moment, mm-hmm. but their, their brain is assessing what the avenue of escape is going to be. Uh, and maybe it's going to be run. Maybe it's going to be fight. You know, depend. But they're not choosing that response. Yeah. A lot of times when I um, train uh, law enforcement and I train people who've worked with victims, I hear things like, um, "Well, they they emotionally weren't responding. They they were acting irrationally. That's not mm-hmm. how I thought a rape victim would act." And when they say they're acting irrationally, they're, that's actually an accurate statement. They're not mm-hmm. in their rational brain when they're responding to trauma, but they're not choosing that response. Right. And, you know, and that I'm, I'm sure where, okay, you hear stories of a victim's telling the, the story about the facts that led up. 
well and they don't always match up with maybe what forensics or whatever found but it doesn't mean that they're lying because people automatically go well obviously it didn't happen and they're making it up because the facts don't mesh absolutely and that brings up a huge point about the fact that when we're functioning in our defense circuitry when our Mm -hmm. brain is trying to help us survive whatever that traumatic experience is that we actually um so the hippocampus in our brain actually helps strongly encode things that happen right before the attack so in the future it can keep you safe from those Mm -hmm. attacks Um, so that information might be very strong but during the trauma itself, the brain is encoding what we call central details for survival. So if I walked in here, Corinne, uh, or if somebody, you know, we're sitting here talking and somebody walks in here and they point a gun at your face, you're probably not going to pay attention to the color of their shoes. <laughs> right. Probably, yes. You're probably not going to be able to tell me what color their pants are because what is central to your survival and what the brain is encoding are those central details central to your survival. So mm-hmm. there will be peripheral details um, that are related to things that people who are doing the investigation, people who are doing the medical examination, they'll want to ask them questions about. And they're asking those questions from a prefrontal logical place because yes. that logically makes sense. But somebody who's experienced trauma, those memories might not even been encoded at all. I actually often use a a puzzle analogy when I'm trying to help people understand the way memory encoding works when somebody's experiencing trauma. I'll talk about that, um, you know, what if I walk in here and I hold up a puzzle for everybody to look at, and I let you take a few minutes to look at the box and what the picture is on that puzzle. And then in front of you, I turn that puzzle upside down. I just pour it out on the floor. And it's just, it's just a hundred piece puzzle. It's not, you know, like the 2000 one my daughter and I just did, <laughs> but we uh, pour that puzzle out and we look at it and I ask somebody, tell me what you see. They're not going to see the whole picture. Yeah. There are going to be pieces that they clearly can see the color. They can see the shape. There are going to be other pieces that are upside down and they might know the shape but they don't know any of the other details and they don't know where it fits in but there are also puzzle pieces that are going to be buried underneath other puzzle pieces and unless we remove that piece of the puzzle we can't get to those other puzzle pieces right which is kind of how the memory works there are some memories that will be clear often Mm -hmm. related to survival and central details There are other ones they might have kind of a recollection of, but they really want to help somebody that's asking them the questions. And when somebody who's asking the questions is of somebody who's in a a importance, a medical professional or a doctor, and they're wanting to provide information, if we keep emphasizing a question that they don't really have the detail to, Mm -hmm. we make it seem like that's super important in the investigation where we can almost lead somebody down the wrong path because they want to help. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those memories, Corey, are buried. And um, it's going to take a period of time to recover them. And it actually takes an average of about 96 hours anyway, just for those hormones to reabsorb into right. the body. And somebody who is subject to chronic trauma, somebody who's in a domestic violence situation where they are repeatedly abused, um, a child who is repeatedly sexually assaulted in their home where they're supposed to feel, feel safe, um, 
you can see that that those chemicals, those hormones, don't ever get fully absorbed, mm-hmm. um, and and the the body is responding out of that trauma, and it is so hard for people to understand that that is not the logical, rational brain mm-hmm. that they're operating out of. It is a survival brain, and. I'll tell you when I've done this presentation and I've had victims in the room and they'll say, that is exactly what I experienced. But I didn't know how to tell somebody that. I didn't want to say, I couldn't scream, I couldn't respond because they experienced an extreme state of um, freeze that we call tonic immobility, where they literally, Mm. um, they can't move their arms. They can't, their, their mouth is opening and no sound comes out. When we can empower victims with understanding what what is you know possibly going on, I like to right. tell them what you're describing is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Yeah, well, and for so many of them, that is how the brain is protecting them is by shutting down, by just uh, eliminating what is happening, put them in a completely different state. They are not even aware anymore. I wouldn't imagine what is going on. So trying to get details from those experiences, they're not even present. That's how they're coping. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually, um, so as we talk about those choices of fight or flight or freeze, Mm -hmm. which really truly aren't choices, we like to think they are, but they're not. Um, They're survival reflexes that our body goes to. Um, and really what happens is um, if our body determines no really isn't working in a situation, no matter how times I, how many times I've said no, this isn't stopping. If fleeing this situation in your brain in trauma no longer seems like an option, you can go to even more significant states of freeze, like what I was talking about with tonic immobility or or collapsed immobility. But what you were just referencing is um, people who talk about disassociation or depersonalization, where they actually can't even remember what the trauma or what that event felt like because they have depersonalized that or they've disassociated. I remember having someone tell me one time, um, they were actually describing being sexually assaulted as a child by their father. And they described sitting in the chair and watching it happen to them. They, they were disassociating from the experience. Um, and those are things that when we can empower people with knowledge about what is happening in trauma, first of all, it can change our response with the people who are, are interacting with victims, which is crucial. I think anybody, whether they're a nurse, whether they're a police officer, whether they're a prosecutor, um, family members, anybody who works with somebody who is describing trauma to them needs to do some work on their own on understanding the impact of trauma and what Mm -hmm. traumatic responses can look like. Because I can tell you, Corey, over my years, um, well-meaning people, including myself, can do pretty damning things when we don't know what we don't know. We can say things like, um, well, why didn't you fight? And, And the reality is that victim doesn't know why they didn't fight. Yeah. They don't know. They don't know how to explain it. They don't want to sound crazy by saying, I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't, um, I couldn't move my legs. I actually, when I train, I, I love to use videos from uh, wildlife because I like to really emphasize the fact that this is hardwired into all of us. We don't get to choose this. Have you ever seen the videos um, of the shark hypnotist? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, where they take sharks and they literally put them on their backs. I actually Mm -hmm. have a video I use where they'll take this baby shark and they'll put him on his back. And he's swimming just fine, but they flip him on his back. And within seconds, he is in a complete rigid state they rub his eyes are open they rub his eyes he doesn't respond they play with his fins he doesn't respond because he is in an abnormal state that induced high stress and high fear that put him in a state of tonic immobility he doesn't want people touching his eyes he doesn't want people rubbing his fins but he is not choosing what that response looks like yeah that's what happens with victims Yep. Uh, you know, I use the I use the one I have one with an impala where a cheetah is actually attacking it, and the initial state of it, start of it, the cheetah actually has the impala. Its entire mouth is in the cheetah's mouth, and the cheetah drops because he hears a predator coming, and that impala just flops, just flops. That's what's mm-hmm. called collapsed immobility. It's kind of like that Raggedy Ann effect. Um, again, not choosing that. But as you continue to watch this video, the cheetah actually runs away because there's a predator coming. And that impala for 15 seconds almost looks like on this video it's not even breathing because in a state of collapsed immobility, mm-hmm. the breathing slows down, the blood pressure slows down. People can describe feeling like they're going to pass out, maybe like they were fainting. You watch this video and then this about 15 seconds into it, this Impala takes this huge breath and it still can't stand up. It still can't run. It still can't get away if the predators to come back. And then the body, body starts circulating the blood and it starts moving. And then it finally is able to get up and run away. When I use that, the, it has no sound on it. And when I train law enforcement and nurses, I was watching the video, I said, I always say, why doesn't it go for the door? Why doesn't it get up and run? Why isn't it calling 911? Right. Because those are the things we ask victims that seem like logical responses. But when we're not in our prefrontal cortex, when we're not in that logical thinking brain, when we're in our survival brain and we're not going to get to choose that response, and when no seems like it's not an option, when escaping the threat doesn't seem like an option, the brain helps us respond. It helps us survive. Yeah. No, I, one of my daughters um, had, and this is many years back when she was a teenager, um, I was a single dad at that point, and uh, she had, uh, after I had gone to bed, she invited a boy over, and, well, he took things farther than she wanted them to go, and it took her a couple of days to tell me. And by the time she had finally broke down, told me what happened, and I immediately took her to the hospital. Um, well, it was a couple of days after the fact, so the you know rape kit wasn't a whole lot of help. But um, just the way this doctor had had talked to her and obviously I wasn't in there for the full examination or anything but the parts that I did see it that was the question and you could see her shutting down because he was well your dad was right down the hallway why didn't you yell 
why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? The officer that came with, you know, same thing, more so with the, with the officer asking those questions. And I could see that they were more and more making my daughter not a victim anymore. Yeah. And she knew it. She felt it by the way that questioning and everything was going down. And her answer to a lot of these is, I, I don't know. Right. I don't know. Right. And she left there and we left there with both of us knowing, and there wasn't a lot of talk on the way home. We, after the fact, uh, had chances to be able to talk, but she knew I believed her wholeheartedly, um, but that nothing was going to come of that. And she just buried it and that, but it came out in a lot of different ways after the fact. Absolutely. I'm sorry that you and your family had that experience. And, you know, that is actually probably one of the biggest things that drives me to educate and to train on this topic. Um, I can tell you, Corey, I was that police officer when I didn't understand this, that when I was asking those questions in my logical brain, well, why didn't you, you know, you, you, how did your dad not hear? You know, I, I didn't understand what I didn't understand, which is why we have to be having this conversation around the impact of trauma. This is yeah. hard brain science that we're talking about now. This is, there's tons of research out there. Dr. Um, Rebecca Campbell with, um, I think it's the University of Michigan, or maybe it's Michigan State, I might have messed that up, um, is fantastic at helping people understand the impact of that. Um, Dr. James Hopper has done some great um, work around this topic as well. But we need to be having these conversations with the people who are responding. Um, Because, you know, like I said, well-meaning people, well-meaning people, we want to do the right thing. We want to help. But when we don't understand what we're looking at, when we don't understand how trauma impacts somebody, how can we even help the victim understand how that trauma has impacted them when we don't understand what we're looking at? Another really key thing is to understand that disclosure during a traumatic event is a process. It's not an event. As the hormones absolve or reabsorb into the body, they don't absolve. As they reabsorb into the body, Um, then some of those memories might come back more. As they talk to other people who ask them different questions in a different way, they might recover more memories. And another really key point to remember when we're dealing with people in trauma, there might be memories that were never encoded. And even though it might seem like a memory that's significant or a detail that's significant to an investigation, it wasn't significant for that brain to encode that memory. So there might be things they can never recover and if it's hard for professionals to understand that, imagine how hard it is for the victim. Yeah. Because when, when they're now mm-hmm. back in talking to people, especially if it's a week later or, you know, a month later, or they're really wanting to help with their case, they don't understand why they, they're like, I don't understand why I didn't pick up the cell phone. Yep. We also really like to emphasize not only um, should professionals really, really every every professional that works in this field should be trained on the impact of trauma and the neurobiology related to it, but they should also be trained on how to ask things in trauma-informed ways. I'll give Mm -hmm. you an example. So if I'm working a sexual assault case, um, I need to know what the victim was wearing. But Mm -hmm. if I say, what were you wearing, how does that come across? 
as the, it's their fault. What did you do to yeah. bring this on it's yourself? Blaming, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And especially that goes along with like societal myths, right? right. You know, because we believe if they're dressed a certain way, if they act a certain way, if they were drinking, um, mm. when really what we should be focusing on is the choice the offender makes to violate that person. But I have to ask that question for my investigation. But there are trauma-informed ways to ask that question. What I like to say is, you know, one of the key aspects of my case is to to collect as much physical evidence as I possibly can. Sometimes that physical evidence can be collected on clothing. What, if anything, are you able to tell me about what you remember wearing? What, if anything, are you able to tell me about what you remember the suspect wearing? And I say, right. what, if anything? Because I don't want to imply that they know. But yes. if they can tell me, I got the same answer. Same thing with what, you know, were, uh, were you drinking? Because, mm-hmm. again, that's victim blaming. Well, and what the Blue Jean Day that happens in May... Um, and I don't know how much, if you're listening, you know about it, but please look it up. And this is something that happened 30 years ago, I believe. I believe it was like 1990, 91 yeah, that, that started this. And it was in Italy and it was a young lady uh, who was raped. And the person got off because they said her jeans were too tight. She brought this on herself yep. by, you know, what she was wearing. And now, you know, that blue jean day is a day to, you know, all of us together to say, no, that's not the case. It doesn't matter what someone is wearing. Uh, That does not give you the right to violate anyone. And I think, especially when we're talking about sexual assault, um, we really fail to hold the people accountable who are making the choices to sexually assault yep. someone because the majority, and, and you know, when we talk about sexual assaults, we, you know, we're talking about the majority of them are, are perpetrated by males, but the reality is the majority of males don't perpetrate sexual assault. Right. Does that make sense? Where, yeah, the majority of sexual assaults occur by a male, but the majority of men would never do those things. They would never no. look at a woman and go, her, her jeans are too tight. Or, oh, she's super drunk. I'm going to get lucky tonight. Uh-huh. They don't think like that. She's wearing that, so obviously she wants me yeah. to. That's not, that's uh-huh. not the yeah. normal thing that the majority of them would think. No. Be- but we don't focus on the choices of that, those few that would make that choice to violate that person or and here's the reality you know the myths that we have the the impact of society through music through um through the messaging that's out there through advertising through video games the messaging that's out there it not only impacts victims on what they think is expected what Mm -hmm. femininity looks like but it's a messaging that goes to our offenders on what it looks like to be a male, to be, you know, one of the guys, boys will be boys. Right. But it also goes to our, that messaging goes to our first responders, to family members. It goes to all of us. Mm-hmm. And perpetrators, the ones who make the choice to commit these acts, count on it. Yeah. They count on it. Uh, and there's so much around understanding trauma. Um, I like to say in my classes, you remember when I told you about the hold up your hand and put it on the front of your head and think about your prefrontal cortex and then think about your thumb that's the size of an almond in a state Mm. of trauma, which one of those would you rather be operating with? Right. And that's going to potentially give you a good indication of who your victim and who your offender is. Mm -hmm. The one who can fill in all the gaps, the one who can give you a chronological story, the one who has the answers to everything, the one who can manipulate you with all the societal myths, good chance they're in their rational, 
thinking brain. Mm -hmm. And they're easy to talk to. They're easy to understand. They're easy to believe. Right. But the one who's been impacted by the trauma, who seems irrational because they aren't in their rational brain, who has gaps in their memory, whose memory is fragmented, why would those things happen if they hadn't experienced trauma? Right. Yeah. Well, there is hopefully, you know, now a time where we're starting to get past some of the those old ways, uh, being trauma-informed for our first responders, for our law enforcement, uh, medical staff. Yeah to realize exactly what we're talking about so that, I mean, things aren't perfect yet, but we're getting getting better. Absolutely. And I love the fact that our state wanted to do that training across our state. Yeah. Um, we trained hundreds of individuals in over a two-week period in six different locations. Um, and from that training, I've got requests from Boise State, from different organizations that want to train their professionals that are working, and that's what we need. And you need organizations like the Nampa Family Justice Center, where they have mm-hmm. trauma-informed counselors who understand that the brain responds in a survival mode you need people in organizations that are going to ask you trauma-informed questions not Mm -hmm. victim blaming questions Uh, and not because they're mean people they just don't understand what they don't understand (laughs) well and like you said the majority of people men women you know would never ever Think about doing something horrible. The last thing they would want to do is to further damage exactly. someone that has. But if you don't know the simplest of questions, yes. what you think, just like you said, what were you wearing? Yeah. It's not, you know, even if you do not mean to blame or to put blame on that person, how that is going to be perceived. And so we all want to be able to look at these things appropriately to handle a situation appropriately. But uh, just like Angela said, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. So education is the biggest thing we can do as a society. Absolutely. It's why it's important that all of us, um, not just those who respond, because you never know when it might be one of your family yeah. members, like you shared, um, that is impacted by trauma. And when we can all educate ourselves a little bit r- around this topic, and when you know, God forbid that we are in a situation where we have a family member, our response will be different. They will be supported differently. And understanding, training, getting some knowledge of the impact of trauma can help mitigate that secondary harm that we could potentially do to somebody unintentionally. Yep. Well, you can get, there's links for you to be able to click on here in the description to educate and to find out more and ways for us to be able to continue to evolve as a society. Angela, thank you. Thank you, Corey. All right. I hope you can join us with our next episode of Pathways to Hope and Healing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pathways to Hope and Healing. Again, if you or someone you know have experienced domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or the Nampa Family Justice Center at 208-475-5700. Search the Nampa Family Justice Center on Facebook and Instagram for more conversations. 
If you have suggestions for topics you would like us to cover or get more information about anything you heard in today's episode, contact us through the email at fjc at cityofnampa.us.